We're going to the book of Jude. We're going to go all the way to the verse number four, which I've got good news for you today. If you think he's going slow, uh, put on your seatbelt. We are going to see more than one verse today. Verse number four, though, is where we're going to start. I've got to get all my pages turned around right. Here we go. Got that, got that, got that. Okay. The text says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. As I began our series together a while ago now, I told you our theme is God is able. And He has not changed. He is still able. And this is a challenging section in a challenging book. As we're working our way through this, we have to keep going back to that truth, that God is able, or else we're going to be scared to death. We're going to read this and say, oh, I can't get through that. That's not, oh, that sounds terrible. And yet, if we keep our our minds set on him, we will remember he is able. These are not easy verses I set before you, and the things that I'm trying to describe to you week by week, they're not easy to to study, much less try to express. Um, Practically every source that I have read or studied uh, concerning the book of Jude, has believed that this book was written to their own generation. I find this very interesting. When Charles Spurgeon commented on this book, he said that he thought it was written for his day. False teachers were manipulating Scripture to blend with modernism. They were hoping that the Bible and the times could mix better. So they twisted scripture to match their behavior. How do you think that went? Hmm. J. Vernon McGee, some of you know his name very, very well, uh, and enjoy his radio broadcast. Uh, very active in the 1970s especially. That was after retirement that he actually went into doing his five-year Bible study. Did you know that? That was after the years of pastoring for all those years, and then he uh, spent his retirement teaching on the radio like he did. Um, But he thought the book of Jude was written for his day back about 40 years ago. The false teachers were manipulating Scripture to blend with liberalism. They were hoping that the Bible and the times could mix better, so they twisted Scripture to match their behavior. How'd that go? We still have a mess to clean up from that, by the way. I believe the book of Jude was written for our day. I'm not saying it wasn't written for theirs either. It was written for Jude's day too. But that's the power of God's Word. It is alive, you know. And this hasn't just become a dusty book, a history point somewhere along a, a you know, power point uh, lecture or something. But I believe it's written for our day. The false teachers are manipulating scriptures to blend with 
Well, what they call the free grace movement. There are radical elements in that whole issue, and it's predominant. I mean, it's all over the place right now. And it's an attempt to remove the expectations of holiness from the church. And I think that's what scares me the most about the whole thing. They're hoping that the Bible and the times could mix better. If I want to summarize it, I would say it this way. They're twisting scripture to match their behavior. That's always an error. It's been an error every single time it's been attempted. And for them to do it today, it's still a problem. Don't think for a moment that uh, theologically weak churches are going to be able to stand up to that kind of thing. We, we are under a deluge of social activism and behavioral modifications. It's flooding the church in our day. And this book is a lie. And it's addressing the issue. And I'm going to give you a comment. And this was by Spurgeon on verse number four. And it was said 140 years ago, probably, or more. If you want to improve a dark night, give us brighter stars. And if we want to enlighten a dark age, let us have brighter Christians. If there is mischief abroad in the world, the fault is to a great extent, in ourselves. If we lived wholly to God, people would know better what Christians are. That stuns me, doesn't How about you? You know what? That quote, I'm putting at the back of the sermon. You're going to hear it again. All right. What have we been seeing so far? There is a red warning light Flashing in this book. Not a yellow, not a caution, but the red warning light of danger. It said in verse 4, certain persons have crept in. Crept in. J. Vernon McGee said that means they're creeps. I laughed when I heard that. I said, yep, there it is. You know the story of the Trojan horse? You have, of course you've heard this, but... The story date back, dates back to 1200 B.C. You're saying, well, where's that in time? Talk about Gideon. Talk about Samson. Talk about Samuel the prophet, the time of the judges. And you've got about the right time when the Trojan horse story comes into play historically. It says, for ten long and weary years, the Greeks laid siege of a city of Troy, but they could not get inside the fortification. They were unable to do it. It seemed impossible. And they didn't know what else to do. And so somebody suggested, why, why don't we build a large wooden horse and hide, hide soldiers inside of it and then sail away as if we're leaving and just leave it there at the gate. So they made a wooden horse. Uh, the soldiers were put inside of it. They were put by the gate of the city of Troy. And they all went away in their ships. Curiosity got the best of the people of Troy. They saw the ship sailing away and they thought the war was over. So they went out and they saw the horse, decided to pull it inside the city. It was something new, it was something to have. That night, you know, the soldiers came out of that horse and they unlocked the gates of the city from the inside. Well, in the meantime, under the cover of darkness, the Greek ships had come back. 
they had only pretended to sail away. The entire army of mighty men could not do what a handful of soldiers did from the inside. And the simple application is the church today is harmed by the inside. By the inside. Our basic issue we're looking at here today is not those who are on the outside, but those who have crept inside. They are inside. See it in verse number 4? They've crept in unnoticed. And yet they turn grace into sin and they deny our Lord. Those two things ought to stop us right there and say, well then I want nothing to do with that. Verse 5 through 16 is a description section on their character. And we're going to start on that today. But what we have in front of us, not only the red flashing light that they're inside the gates, but what it tells us to do about that concerns our own maturity in God's love. You and I need to mature in God's love. We are loved. We saw that in verse 1 and 2. We're loved already, aren't we? Yes, deeply. And we're kept as well, it says in the text. We are kept for Jesus Christ. We're kept. I love those things. And when you go all the way to verse 24, we're still loved and we're still kept. Who is able to keep you from stumbling? It's our Lord. So all the way through from beginning to end, he's doing that. But here we're stuck in the middle. We're in the middle of it all. And we're told to stay close to him. We need built up. And the goal of of what we're here for today, folks, the reason why we gather as a church body weekly, on Sundays, we had a Wednesday night as well, and other opportunities that go along with it. We have a job to do. Every one of us are a part of this job. That is to build each other up to maturity in Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing in every single way. Taking advantage of every moment we can. We need to build up because we have another task and that is to rescue others. And if we are not built up, we're going to fall down with them. We have to be strong. It's a ministry for all of us. I've read to you this passage in Ephesians. I'm going to read it to you again. Verse 4 through verse 16. Listen carefully. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until, and this is how we know when we're done, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Are we there? No, we got work to do, don't we? That's what this is why we're called to do this. What is its value? I'm keep reading Ephesians four fourteen. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Watch this. By the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's going on. And if we're maturing in Christ, then we have the anchor in these wild waves of doctrines. 
Rather, verse 15 and 16 says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. Don't think for a minute you're not important. According to the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The folks we're reading about in the book of Jude have a mission, and that is to destroy, not to build up, but to tear down the church. That's what they're doing. Uh, Jesus warned that the thief comes in to steal and to destroy. And that's what's going on. When Paul was speaking to the Ephesus Ephesian elders, in the book of Acts, actually, he was meeting with them on the shore. There was only a quick opportunity to talk to them before he went on to Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 20, listen to the conversation that went on in this, this passage. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called to the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know that the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that came upon me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jew and Greek, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And knowing what will happen to me there, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish a course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I am preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day, and I am innocent of the blood of all men. But I do not shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on your guard." Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own self, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them." The passage keeps going and he alerts them to stay in God's word. But that's a pretty heavy warning, isn't it? Savage wolves are coming, and guess where they're coming from? Your own people. That's scary. Today I want to take you into verse 5, especially. I start with verse number 4, just to remind you of the warning that's before us here, the danger. But verse 5 through 16 is the descriptive, descriptive section that we are studying together. I purposely will say this to you. We will not go into the kind of depth that would keep us in Jude two or three years. All right. 
Actually, 2 Peter chapter 2 has that same information, yet with a lot more detail. 2 Peter 2. And guess what we're starting tonight? 2 Peter 2. So, rather than just keep sounding like I'm repeating myself morning and evening, I know Peter deals with this section with much more depth. I'm not discrediting Jude. I'm just saying that Peter does deal with it a lot. And I don't want the AM services and the PM services to look like I'm just repeating myself here. But the details go a little further than what I intend to share on a Sunday morning. And I say it delicately because little ears are in our congregation. And they make little posters for me and I stick on my door. And some of these things I don't want on a poster. (laughs) All right? I'm not afraid to address it. But if you pull up the recordings, if you're not here on Sunday nights, they are on the web service, our church website. And you can listen to the detailed section, or as they used to call it, the rest of the story, right? Uh, that will be, that's my strategy. And this morning service, as I like to do with Sunday mornings anyway, is to work on our growth, our growth, our growth, because that's what we desperately need as a church body. In the evening, there's more direct commands and more direct issues and more direct comments on the sins of the false teachers. And that's what I'm doing here. We have dual services going on. Make sense? Just so you know what I'm doing. So you're going to say, boy, he flew through this passage today. Um, come tonight and you'll see how slow I can get. Okay? Be that as it may, we've got a summary of what God has said about this problem. And here's what seems to be the simple way of saying it. This problem is the same problem that's been going on for centuries. Over and over and over again, God has seen it. And this this is not a, a warning that's just a, suddenly something new and God wasn't expecting it. He has seen this so many times. And that's the illustrations you have in front of you from verse 5 all the way almost pretty much to verse 16. There's a lot of Old Testament illustrations here because it's happened before. The nature of these things have happened before. The illustration of them are simple. And the stories you're going to bring right to your mind immediately as we start. Verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Where are you going to go with this story? Where are you going to find it? It's Old Testament, right? It's Book of David. Uh, I said that for my Sunday school class. There I say, Book of David! <laughs> no, not the Book of David. You find part of it in Exodus and the rest in the Book of Numbers. It's about a 40-year walk. God pulled his people out of Egypt. You remember? Moses led them into the wilderness. How'd they do? I once filled out a report card on these people. It looked bad. (laughs) 
It looked really bad. They failed in every single test God sent them there. They failed it over and over and over. And it was so frustrating. That's the hard part to read in your devotions when you say, for this year I'm going to read through the Bible in a whole year. That's like right there in February. And it's like, whoa! And it's hard to get through that because you got that and then you got Leviticus and most people, that's where it falls apart. But it's a sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief, it says, he brought these people out of the land of Egypt, and then he destroyed them because they did not believe. How could they have missed it? You ever think about that? They saw the plagues. They saw his answer. They marched out with all the things that God had given to them. They crossed the Red Sea. You know, if any of us had that experience, we'd talk about it the rest of our life, wouldn't we? Every chance we got, we'd have pictures in our wallets and everything. We'd say, look at this. But they went through the Red Sea and they said, well, God really doesn't love us. And they went through all this manna being provided every single day for 40 years. They had the provision of manna and twice, you know, on Saturday, or Friday so they could eat on Saturday. It's just amazing. And you say, what do you mean they did not believe That's their story. They did not believe. They had all the evidence in front of them, and yet the sin of unbelief was right there. And what topped it off was, they had men, if you read the story, men who kept trying to pull them away from the Lord, and pull them away from Moses, and say, let's go back, we had great onions back there. It's like, what? They were constantly steering the people away from the Lord. That's not a dusty Old Testament story. That's still happening today. People are trying to say, there's something better for you than what God has said in His Word. They're steering people away all the time. The reminders are necessary when we talk about Old Testament stories. In the end times, the conversation, according to Peter, 2 Peter 3, by the way, is simply simply this. Oh, the Lord doesn't really judge. <laughs> I think scriptures tell us he does. But what they're going to say in Second Peter 3, in the end times, and watch it, it's coming, you're going to hear it. Know this first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water. And it goes on to say God wasn't afraid to judge it. Remember the flood? He judged these people coming out of Egypt. All but two of them died. Right? All but two of them died. That's a very pronounced story. That's illustration number one. Illustration number two is in verse six. As I said, there's much more detail in the Sunday night services, but it talks about angels who sinned. And this is a puzzling passage. It says, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And we scratch our head. We say, 
when did this happen? The commentators are all over the place on this one. I'm going to simply say it might be Genesis 6. Genesis 6 starts like this. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And when Peter picks up his pen to comment on it, he says in Second Peter 2, 4, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. I don't know positively that I could say that's the exact same passage, but there seems to be indicators it could be. And when you get down to it, it shows you that God's not afraid to punish an angel. As a matter of fact, their punishment is quite severe because they disobeyed. They sinned, it says. They sinned. So God's not afraid to deal with disbelief, and God's not afraid to deal with sin. The record is in Scripture. Verse number 7 is illustration number 3. You see the words, don't you? They just pop right up on the page. They're, they're like, whoa, really? All right, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities around them, notice, and the cities around them, do you know that was not the only two cities that fell that day with ashes and brimstone and, and destruction from the Lord? Adma was one, Zeboim was another, and the third was supposed to be Zoar. And Lot says, well, we can't run very far, let us run to Zoar. And the Lord says, okay, you can go over there. And then he chose not to go. But God had destined for at least five cities to be destroyed that day. But Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulge in gross immorality, and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. I don't have to condemn them. God already did. The truth of Scripture is right before us. This illustration is not only disbelief, it's bad behavior. And do you know what's interesting to me? In the New Testament, whenever false teachers are characterized Two things pop off the page right away. Disbelief and bad behavior. All of these illustrations are the same thing. They're showing you the same thing. And you know, sometimes it's hard to sift through doctrine to spot when it's bad. You hear people talking and you say, I, I don't know if that's right or if that's wrong. It's so subtle. It looks genuine. It's even worse when they use our words. And they use it in their doctrine. And they say, well, we must believe the same thing. They wear a Sunday suit too. They're accepted by the majority. By the way, I've got a theory on that. When the majority likes it, I step back. I say, I'm not sure. But there's something not right there. They use our words. But something is rotten on the inside. To me, it's like the food item that gets pushed way to the back of the refrigerator. You can't see it, but you can smell it's in there. And there are some doctrines like that today. 
that you can't see it, and you're looking for it, and you say, Where's, what, what's, the, what's the deal? I don't understand what's wrong. I, they're using our words. They're using, but something isn't right. The Lord says, test the spirits. You know who helps you with that? The Lord does. <laughs> and he knows the difference between what's right and what's wrong. We have to depend upon him. We have to turn to him and say, Lord, I don't get this, but something's not right. Doctrine's hard, but actions are much easier to see. Jesus said you will know a tree by its fruit, right? If you go and pick fruit off a tree and it's producing fruit that is so disgusting that the flies won't even touch it, that's bad fruit, right? You can be sure something's wrong with that tree. False teachers tend to have disgusting behavior. That's the way Scripture characterizes them over and over and over. One of their first traits is they're divisive. Watch to see how that's happening in our land right now. Divisiveness is everywhere. And that's what they're, that's what they're propagating as well. Remember, they come to destroy, not to build. They don't put things together. They take them apart. They separate. They divide. They do not unify. Do, they, do not cause people to grow to be like Christ. They focus on themselves and on their own pride. And you say, where do you get all this? Look at Jude verse 19. There it is. These are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly minded. And they're devoid of the spirit. That's bad fruit. That's what they do. Jude tells you that these illustrations that I just set before you, Moses and the Israelites, and then the second one we had of, of the angels who sinned, and then the third, Sodom and Gomorrah, all of those, this is his comparison to false teachers. He says, in the same way. In the same way. That's kind of scary. Verse number 8. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Their disbelief, there's disobedience. They replace truth with dreams. And how do you argue with somebody when they have a dream? It's so subjective, isn't it? How do you argue with somebody? They say, I had a dream. And you say, well, that's why we take, keep it in God's Word. Because dreams can be brought on by bad pizza or something. We say, no, let's talk about God's Word. Let's talk about God's Word. Not your dream. Not your thought. God's Word. Let's go back to where we can talk. But see, they pull people away and they say, listen to what I've got to say. It's something different. They replace truth is what it is. They replace truth and they're so subtle about it. They defile the flesh. There's bad actions there. They reject authority. If they reject the Lord's authority in verse number 4, if they deny the Lord, you can be sure that they will reject authority of other men too. And here's the thing that I've noticed lately. When spiritual men correct them or confront them, they reject them too. 
They revile angelic majesties. And that's a rather bold thing to do. First of all, he says, you don't even understand them. <laughs> and you're trying to, to consider yourself superior to an angel? Well, why not? What has our world brought angels down to? Little cherubs with wings that float around with bow and arrows and make people fall in love. That's what our world thinks an angel looks like. It's a cherub. So, we have been walking down this road for many years. People leading others astray. And then verse 9 tells us a story that you're not going to find anywhere else in Scripture. And it's the oddest story. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuked you. You understand all that, don't you? I'll tell you how simple it is. I don't know what Satan wanted with the body of Moses, but you can bet it wasn't a good thing. Whatever he was going to do, it was not a good thing. And I'm very glad, from what I gather, he never got it. Michael, perhaps the greatest of all the angels, rebuked Satan in the Lord's authority, because after all, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. What does that have to do with our main point? Why does Jude just throw that in here? False teachers do things that even Michael the archangel wouldn't do. Is that bold or what? Case in point, verse 10. These men revile the things which they do not understand. Because they're spiritual things, and that's spiritually appraised. You've got to have the Holy Spirit to do it. Apparently they have none of that. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. You know what? That's half of his description. As he's working through what he wants us to see, we get up to verse number 10, and that's half of his description on those who have crept in. Is it a pretty picture to you? <laughs> it's not good at all. If they're allowed to have their way, the church will be torn up from the inside. Do you see it? That's where it goes every single time. But let me mark a few things for you. Number one, Jesus is building his church. And when he mentioned that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says, I say also to you, that you are Peter, he's talking to Peter at the moment, he says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That's great news. Now that doesn't mean Satan won't try. When I was in college, my theology teacher was explaining the temptation of Jesus Christ in class, and that's quite a topic if you study it through. Say, well, could Jesus have sinned? Could he not sin? It's a big theological point. And they were working us through there. There was a lot of dialogue. And the part that I remember especially was this. Satan did his best to destroy Jesus, much like attacking a battleship with a canoe. You could guess who's going to win. In the end, the church 
that belongs to Jesus Christ will stand before Him. You see it in verse 24, don't you? He will make you stand in His presence with great joy. I know the winner. I know the winner. She will stand there in all her glory, blameless, yes, spotless. Other passages deal with that. Dressed as a bride on her wedding day. Now that fact is not to make us indifferent or callous to the day and age we live. In our present situation, we are the bride of Christ. But we're also at war. We're in a battle today. And the testimony of the church is needed more today than, I don't know, it seems like I'm living in those days and I say, where is it? Where's the testimony of the church in a day like ours? The sins of this world are seeping, no, not seeping, rushing into the church. It's flooding the church. And the church people are weak and they're unable to stand in a firm position. They're tossed by false teaching. They're practicing bad behavior, thinking it's okay to live like the world, even applauding those who do so. That's our present situation. And that's coming from theological circles that says it's okay to do that. Makes me sick. Judah said it. I believe it's true in our world today. There's a deceit of grace around us, and there's a denial of lordship around us. It's all around us. Our current theological environment is those two things are assaulting the church right now. What does Jude tell you to do? Verse 20. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith... Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Guard yourselves in God's love. That's especially prominent in verse 21. It's the only command in that list, and it means right now do it. Urgently do it, like you've never done it before. You must do it because the false teachers have already slipped in. The false teachers will convince you that God's character is not what you think it is. They will do their best to say that God withholds information from you that would do you some good. God keeps keeps you from enjoying the pleasures of life. God is mean. God is too strict. God doesn't really say that sin will kill you, does he? Then they would say, well, God really doesn't love you after all. Because your day's not easy. You're struggling with your health. You have trouble with finances. Your job is tough. Your family, whoo. God, if he really loved you, he'd make your life perfect. You must have done something wrong. And now God really doesn't love you. He hates sin, you know, and he will punish you in the harshest way, even removing you from his love and his protection. Here's the point. It's a full circle. They say, God loves you and you can do what you want. And then when they get you to do what you want, they say, now God doesn't love you. Because you did that. It just swings around in circles. 
It's because the enemy wants to put a wedge between you and the God who loves you. He wants that wedge in your mind so you can't think right. He wants you to feel like God has separated you from his love. And you know he can't. And he won't. Don't you know that? Romans 8 makes that pretty clear, doesn't it? Nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. It's true. I'm not saying that means go out and sin like the devil. Uh Uh-uh. The devil tells you it's okay to sin. He says it's okay to turn grace into licentiousness. And once you fall into the trap, he turns on you again and says your God is so cruel because he's going to punish you for that. So rather than running to our protection, rather than going to where we're safe, rather to pull closer to the God who loves us, he has us running and abandoning and heading the wrong way. All we like sheep have gone astray, and that's exactly what the wolf wants. Because when he separates us in that way from the love of our God, the enemy has the advantage. He has no advantage when you're standing right next to the shepherd. No advantage at all. You see the beauty of this little passage? I know it's a tough one to swallow and work through. It's like taking those nasty vitamins with bad flavor. But you got to take it. Why? Because it's good for you. Right? That's what you got to do. This passage is good for us. We need to be strong. We need to be able to stand strong. Because there are people among us who've already fallen for the deceit. They've already fallen into the fires. And they need rescued. And that's what Jude says. They need rescued. Who's strong enough to do it? Who's called to do that? We are. See, some of these commands are for you to grow, and some of them are for you to help. And yet, all of them are so that you will trust your Lord. Remember, He is able. These days can be scary, but He is able. We have to learn that if we're going to obey Him, We have to trust him. Do you think he's able? I do. Can he keep you from falling? Is he able to make you stand in his presence with great joy? Does he completely, perfectly, permanently love you? Has he set you apart for himself? Does he keep you? Has he given to you his mercy and his peace? And his love, trust him. Trust him. All right, I promised. I was bringing that quote back. You ready? If you want to improve a dark night, give us brighter stars. If you want to enlighten a dark age, let us have brighter Christians. If there is a mischief abroad in the world, the fault is to a great extent in ourselves. If we live wholly to God, people would know better what Christians are. Heavenly Father, these words are ringing in our hearts even right now. This is our call for what we do in a day like today. How to live in the end times. And Lord, as a church, we come before you today. We are in so much need to know you to grow in you, to be mature like Christ. 
Every one of us needs to grow. And so we come before you and say, thank you, Lord, first of all, for showing us that. And then for giving us everything we need for life and godliness. For being present with us. For encompassing us with your love. For giving to us all these things. You know, Lord, how we are prone to wander. And we're prone to believe the words that are spoken just because we hear them a lot. But they're not true to Scripture. Teach us to be Bible people. To saturate ourselves in your words so that we know the difference between what is genuine and what is false. Teach us to be discerning people so that we can see with our eyes and with our heart and understand when things are an attack on our faith, on our grace, on our, our Lordship of Jesus Christ, when those attacks come our way, may we be standing firm in our faith, in the love of God, and able to help those who aren't. Lord, help us with this passage. We have much to do, and we're so thankful that you're at work in our midst. We give you the praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen.